Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In 1936, Kansas City native Charlie Parker took to the stage at 16 years old and played so poorly that Count Basie's drummer threw a cymbal at his head. The act encouraged the saxophonist to become one of the hardest working musicians to ever live, and years later, Parker changed the music world forever. Since then, the music scene in Kansas City has gone through lots of changes, and this is a show dedicated to modern-day musicians who live and play in the pairs of the plains. From Tribune Audio Network, I'm Kendall Swank, and this is the Crazeology Podcast. My guest today is Bobby Watson, who is just an incredible saxophone player, and you were actually a member of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. That's right. And as somebody who played jazz, I mean, that is just so cool to hear. So you came in as this band had already been established for years, and the greatest players to ever play jazz were all a part of this. What was that like for you, you know, coming out of college, and then all of a sudden um, you're in one of the greatest jazz bands to ever exist? Well, it was uh, definitely a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and uh, a great honor, of course, and uh, a privilege and um, a great learning experience. Um, being with him probably uh, saved me 10 years of uh, guessing around and uh, learning the hard way. Because um, I went to New York in August of uh, 1976 and started hanging out in Manhattan, you know, going out every night, meeting, meeting people, meeting the musicians, and uh, trying to sit in where I could. And uh, I slowly started to meet a lot of the great musicians that were there in New York. Who were some of those guys? Um, uh, Albert Daly, uh, Russell and Roland Kirk, uh, Roland Prince, Billy Higgins, uh, John Hicks, uh, Billy Hart, um, and then uh, Curtis Fuller. And uh, Curtis Fuller uh, was a met, is a messenger, but, but was in the band, one of the great, more well-known bands. And he st- took me under his wing and, and said, you got to meet Boo, you know, you got to meet Boo. Uh, and so um, he was with Count Basie at the time. And uh, when they were off the road, they'd be in New York playing at a place called uh, Storyville. That was uh, George Ween, uh, his club, George Ween, the great impresario, the Newport Jazz Festival and stuff. So um, um, they brought Art down to the club one day. It was his birthday, actually, and they brought him down, and they bought him a bottle of champagne. Curtis Fullenham didn't do this. It was another friend of mine, Joe Kingston, who brought him down. And I was on the stage with Curtis and uh, Jimmy Forrest, and Butch Miles and Victor Sproles and Chris Woods, all cats that were with the Basie band then. And, um, you know, they brought Art down to hear me. And uh, before I knew it, Art was on stage. Um, he had switched places with Butch, and he was up there blowing, you know, behind me, you know, blow, blow. You know, <laughs> I always say it's like 
you're going down the highway doing 60 and a Mack truck comes behind you and bumps you doing 70, you know, <laughs> and like, whoa, what just happened to the beat, man? <laughs> it was already nice enough. And all of a sudden, man, it's got more. It just changed him. There he was back there. And then um, he asked me to join that night after the set was over. So did you feel any sort of pressure or any um, feeling like you needed to work even harder just because you were joining this band that had already been around when guys like Miles, you know, um, I mean, everyone played in, in Blakey's band at one point or another. Yeah, and he played with Bird too. So it was he was just, he's definitely part of the sound of jazz, our Blakey's drums. And um, I'd already, well, I hadn't been in New York that long, but I'd been in New York a few months. And the thing that uh, let me know that I was kind of uh, on the mark was that after I sit in, people would come up to me and ask me, so who are you with? You know, because a lot of bands would come through town and while the bands had a couple of days off in New York or were playing in New York, they would come out to the clubs afterwards and and, uh, and sit in and jam, you know. And so um, it was un- it wasn't wasn't uncommon for uh, musicians to come in and sit in, and the guys that lived in New York didn't know who they were, so they would ask, "Well, who are you with?" You know, and they'd say, "Well, I'm, I'm in town with Buddy Rich, or I'm in town with Horace Silver, and." whatever, um, Count Basie. <clears throat> but they'd ask me who I was with, and I'd say, I'm not with anybody. You know, but that, they they wouldn't come up. That was a big compliment to me because, you know, in New York, they don't come up and say, yeah, man, you're killing, man. You sound great, you know, man. You know, they, they don't do that. You know, maybe the young kids today, they do that, you know. But back then, the cats didn't do that, you know. Um, if they ask who you're with, that means that you were on a certain level. So my vision, uh, my inner strength uh, grew from that, from those experiences. So uh, when I got with art, um, I felt like I was deserving and ready because a lot of people were telling me I needed to meet Art Blakey because he liked young musicians. Um, nervous? Yes, I still get nervous. <laughs> I think if you stop getting nervous, you know, before you play or when you're about to do something like that, then you've um, you've lost it. You know, you stop growing. But heck, yeah, I was nervous. <laughs> oh, what do you? I mean, that situation. What do you get? Are you nervous about you know messing up your changes? Are you nervous about like forgetting the form or what? What do you still get nervous about after playing for so long? Uh, because you know, when you play jazz, you're stepping out into the unknown. You know, and each night is different, and uh, no two nights are the same. So you always get you know, you get a little anxious, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen, you know. It was always great. There was never no, there was never no bad moments. There were learning moments on the stage where I uh, I could do better, and I came back the next night and tried to improve on it. And plus, uh, I was nervous because, um, at that point, because Art Blakey, to have this sound behind you, then it's the sound that you heard on all these records, you know, that you grew up listening to. And there's that sound right behind you. So it was like walking on glass, you know. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't want to break it, you know. So you were really trying to play your best and try to 
not mess up the time or the groove. You just wanted to be, you just wanted to ride on it and not break break the spell, you know, because you became, when you played with art, you became part of that sound. You became part of the jazz sound. And so that was like a big responsibility to be able to play and to have yourself be part of that sound. When I started playing jazz, I learned from this amazing teacher named Edgar Crockett. He's not a household name and teaches at a small college in Moline, Illinois, but I did learn a lot from him. One of the things he taught me was the band leader is always in charge. doesn't matter how talented you are. If your leader wants you to play a certain way, speed up or slow down, you do it because it's their band. I want to know if Blakey was the same way. Well, he would definitely uh, set the pace. And, but at the same time, he was always listening. Because he used to say that uh, you see with your ears and you hear with your eyes. So, and I understand that, you know. Uh, you, even though you don't see a person, you you can hear what they're doing, and that gives you a mental image of what they're doing. So he was very, very sensitive with his dynamics and things like that. So, and uh, he loved to accompany, you know, so he'd help you build your solo. He taught us how to build. You know, just the way from this symbol to that symbol, he would, you know, when he went to that symbol, we knew we better be at a certain place in our uh, development, in our solo. Mm. And then uh, he didn't like us to play too long. So he had an idea about, you know, first chorus, second chorus, third chorus, you know, and if you get to the fourth chorus and if he's telling you to blow, blow, and if he gets to the, if he hadn't went to that symbol yet, and if he goes to the big symbol, then he's he's taking you home, you know. So you better start mm-hmm. trying to peak and and come down and and and, and sign off, you know. Because he had a thing he would do, boom, boom, bam, and then he'd be done, you know. And then you, if you kept going, you know, he would he would uh, kind of play things that would uh, let you know that you played too long. A lot of the old jazz standards are played pretty fast, like. You don't know how fast until you're sweating on stage and your hands are cramping from trying to move your fingers to keep up with the beat. So what's happening in your brain when you're trying to improvise on a song when it's that fast that you can't even tap your toes to it? Playing fast is an illusion. Um, So when it's up there, I'm actually playing slow, you know, and, and the rhythm section is laying down the illusion of speed. And the rhythm section can do that because they know how to, thinking halftime and and with with their technique, they give the illusion of speed. All all players, you know, know, it's like this. If I'm going one, two, two, one, that's pretty fast. That's really fast. But inside, we're thinking this. But it's like ding, 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 ding. But I don't, that we, we, it's our job to present the illusion of of speed, like like uh, ballet dancers and stuff, you know, when they grab when a man grabs a woman and and, and twit, flips her and they over the top of the you know and they and they make it look so easy, you know, like she's floating on air. The, the person probably weighs about 110 pounds, you know, <laughs> minimum, you know. And I've been uh, on the sidelines of uh, ballet dancers when they they leap. And when they when they land, you hear you hear a thud, you know. You don't see that you don't hear the thud out in the audience, but and they're on that toe, and they're like you know they're making a little wiggly adjustment to look <laughs> graceful. 
you know, to give the appearance of grace, but it's all like muscles and, you know, and, and, and you know, same with playing fast. It's one of those things in art, you know, like a great painter, you know, uh, like Rembrandt was very good. You look at Rembrandt, you can tell what time of day it is or what, what kind of day. It was a cloudy day, partly cloudy, you know, he, he master of creating the light. So when you look at a painting, you know what I mean? It's the yeah. same with any art, and, and playing fast is one of those things that uh, 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 in, is involved in, in music. Bobby put it on an album in 2017 called Made in America, and a lot of the songs were dedicated to famous black Americans. One of those songs is called The Aviator, dedicated to Tuskegee Airman Wendell Pruitt. Pruitt was an ace pilot from St. Louis, and part of the story was portrayed in the 2012 movie Red Tails. Bobby was drawn to the character because his dad was also a pilot, and he wanted to dedicate a song to Pruitt and his accomplishments. So here it is, The Aviator, off Bobby Watson's album, Made in America.
There are two ways to learn jazz. Before it became a study, people would listen to the recording and play note for note with the musicians on the track we're playing. And then there's the more modern way of taking lessons and learning the forms, chords, and scales from a teacher. Since you were learning jazz at a time before it became a study, which way did you learn? First, first time I played in public was in my grandfather's church. So I always loved music, and I, had, I was playing clarinet. And uh, I also tried to play a little piano during the church service because I was taking piano lessons. And um, the first tune I played was Battle Hymn of the Republic, mm. you know. And when I got there, everybody went, amen, amen, you know, some claps for the amen, you know. So and my grandfather uh, was always supportive of us playing instruments. And my dad played sax in the church from time to time. Uh, like an A and B selection, they call it, you know. So, you know, music was always around. And my father was... Uh, um, Tuning pianos mm-hmm. and repairing instruments. He worked for a repair shop, repair shop, music store, while he was learning how to fly, and it helped you know pay for going to ground school and whatever. They were letting him go and just do his thing, and um, so there was always music, a piano, in some state of uh, repair, instruments in some state of uh, assembly or disassembly. <laughs> so I. Uh, as uh, soon as I could, I started taking piano lessons, and I always wanted to. I always, always played by ear. I mean, I was I, I was learning to read, but I always enjoyed taking things off the radio or, or records and TV. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh, nice music on TV back then, so and it, it would be a regular basis. Like I know a lot of uh, <laughs> TV theme songs. You know, because they come on weekly, you know. So uh, you learn that out through repetition and the radio. We had the top 40 radio. and then, um, So I was just always using my ear, and I always liked to use my imagination. You know, my uh, my band director would always say, Watson, stop padding the parts. Because I'd always be adding notes, you know. Yep. Especially when I was, I was playing first, tra- first chair clarinet. So I could... I add, add a little twiddly D or, 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 or a little appoggiatura or, or pick up, you know, you know, and because uh, I was hearing it, you know, and and uh, uh, I always had that knack, you know. I just wanted to always use my imagination, and and then when I got to high school, and um, our American history teacher. Uh, Dave King uh, was a drummer at night, jazz drummer. And so I guess he saw that we had this interest. So he turned the second half of the year from American history to jazz history. Cool. Which actually is American history. Right. So he wasn't, he didn't get in trouble. So he took us through the different eras, you know. And then that's really when I started getting my formal education in terms of realizing that I wasn't crazy and there were other people like me that, like to use their imagination. And I said, at that point, I said, huh, I think I'm a jazz musician, <laughs> you know? And uh, and so, cause, you know, that's the gray area. You can learn, you can learn uh, the, the science, the, the chords, 
what tone roll goes with this sound, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And uh, transcribe a lot of recordings, you know, because you, you do have to listen. Absolutely. You got to do a lot of listening. And around that time, I, I met some friends that had jazz records. So I think that's probably the most important thing um, um, is um, listening, you know. And though, um, as I was saying, you can learn all the things, mm -hmm. uh, Kendall, but uh, hmm, the imagination is the gray area. So you ended up going to college at University of Miami? Yeah, I did two years of uh, junior college at Kansas City Community College. Okay. Yes, we were uh, the first class that was uh, in the new campus out west. It used to be on uh, 10th and uh, 7th and State, State Avenue, downtown Kansas City, mm -hmm. Kansas, the old building. Mm -hmm. That was it. And then they built this new campus out west, and we were the f first ones to occupy it. That was like 1972, 73, something like that, when it opened. And so I did two years there and then transferred to the University of Miami. So what was the, what was the main difference between the jazz programs between, you know, when you're, when you're being that – you're evolving as a musician and then you're also starting to get more instruction from better players? What – what would you say would be the biggest difference between your time uh, at Kansas City uh, Community College here and then going to Miami? Um, location. Well, yeah. <laughs> location number one. Uh, they had the Miami Beach scene. Uh, when I was here, uh, I had a very good teacher. Uh, his name is Marlon Cooper, and he plays alto sax and mm -hmm. clarinet, all the saxes and stuff. He plays some bass, you know, and uh, – he was uh, running the jazz out there at the community college. So I was getting information from him, and I met some uh, composers like uh, uh, Clifton Williams came up to us. He was a very f famous band composer back then, him and Alfred Reed, Nellie Bell. Mm -hmm. All the high school concert bands were playing their stuff. So I met him, and then Pat Matheny, I was hanging out with him, and he went down there. Uh, ahead of me, you know, even though he's a little younger than me, he was, he was, he, he was kind of graduated early, and so he was already down there. Is Pat from here? He's from Lee Summit. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his brother Mike. So you guys known each other for a while there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Before we both went to New York, I used to, I spent a few nights out at his house, and then oh. Pat was very instrumental, you know, uh, in uh, turning me on to some records and, and repertoire. You know, because he, he learned a lot from his big older brother, mm -hmm. Mike Matheny, who was in the Army at that time. And he said, yeah, my big, my brother Mike, you know, he turned me on all these records, you know. So I used to hang out with them, and I, I go out to uh, I-70, the Ramada Inn, the musician like Gary Sivils, uh, trumpet, and Paul Smith, you know. They played out there, and I they let me sit in, you know. And... Uh, you know, I, I I listened to them playing all the standards and stuff, and then when I got up there, they 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 play like a two chord vamp for me, you know, which is kind of cool. But it's like after a while, I said, yeah, I don't want to play those no more. I want I want to play what y'all playing. These real changes, yeah. And I want to do what y'all do. I, mean, I can do that, man. Come on now, let me help. You know, I just need to know. I don't know them, you know. <laughs> so 
you know, Pat Pat uh, helped me out a lot. Another guy, Monty Musa, another guitar player here in town. Uh, went over to his house, spent a lot of time over to his house. They play records for me, you know, you know, teach me songs, Stella by Starlight and All the Things You Are, Green Dolphin Street, you know, Autumn Leaves. Start to build my repertoire, you know, rhythm changes, blues, of course, and, you know, and the aforementioned Cherokee. Yeah. <laughs> so all these folks, you know, I just started hanging out because I had this knack, you know. I, I just like to express myself and uh, use my imagination. And that's where it's, that's really the most important thing and a desire. And uh, uh, so I just, I wanted no more information. I wanted to sound better. I wanted to play what they were playing, you know. So I came, I, came, I backed into it, you know. My dad used to play Gene Ammons uh, records. He had loved Gene Ammons. And so I heard a lot of Gene Ammons, and my dad was a stickler for sound, mm-hmm. saxophone sound. He, it was, sound was most important to him. So, you know, and he he played, you know, uh, by, by ear, you know. He wouldn't sit down and he could read like that. He played by ear. And uh, he was good friends with Nathan Davis, who a uh, great tennis saxophone player who went to New York and started the uh, jazz program out there like 30, 40 years ago at the uh, University of Pitt, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, and uh, went on to play uh, great things. If you can check out Nathan Davis, he passed away recently, though. And, um, you know, so it was like it was all around me. You know, my dad was flirting with it and loved to do it. And he, he'd stand in the corner and just blow, you know, blow for himself, you know. And he'd learn all his church songs and spirituals by ear, you know. So it was just sort of like that's where it was, you know. We'd be in the church, and if we sang a song, uh, my dad would always take the same note with any song. That was his note, and I find my note. You know, and the whole congregation was like that. You know, mm. my 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 aunt, my 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 grandfather, who was the pastor, he would start singing in any key. He didn't worry about it. And my aunt, my aunt Anne, uh, she would find the key and then go. She oh, could wow. play in any key, any song in any key. Jeez, you know, yeah. which is tough. I mean, I don't think a lot of people who don't play really realize how hard it is to play and be or to, you know especially yeah. when you have uh that's right uh or like uh i mean certain keys where that you have like you know five five, flat, five sharps and seven <laughs> yeah, flats that's right and they're just like trying to think your your brain's not used to doing yeah, that you're used yeah. to just oh here's c everything's so nice yeah it looks like you're reading chinese you look, <laughs> you look over there at this key signature you go what the heck is that you know <laughs> that makes you scared right away right <laughs> Bobby told me that his album was a tribute to less-known historical figures in black culture. One of those people is Thelma Butterfly McQueen. She's probably best well-known for playing Prissy in Gone with the Wind, but she spent later years in her life serving others in her community. While working on Waitress in the 60s, McQueen helped fight poverty and worked at a public school in Harlem where she patrolled the area, picking up litter and watching kids on a playground. This is Bobby Watson's tribute to McQueen called The Butterfly. Thank you. 
Bobby and I talked more. He talked about his time in Miami and the clubs they were playing, but he also brought up practice. And 
practice is more than just playing a song from the beginning to end. It's about getting every single part right and then doing it again and again until it becomes habit. So I asked Bobby, who teaches at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, to explain more what it means to practice. Number one, you got to practice the parts you don't you don't sound good on. <laughs> so if you're really practicing, you're, you're practicing real slow and it doesn't really sound that good. Mm-hmm. You know, some, a lot of people, when they start practicing when they're younger, they play the part that they sound good on, you know, and then when they get to the part that's, that's hard, they start struggling. So they start over again and they get to that same part and they start struggling. So they start over again. Yep. It's like, you know, so you, you never get past the part you can't play. So you got to really just, Focus on the stuff that you can play and and slow, practicing slow, actually in slow motion. You know, you practice in slow motion, you know, and then you then the speed will come because you'll get bored because you're good at it you, and you'll start going faster and faster. You know, speed, speed comes naturally, naturally. The hardest thing is to practice slow. And that's what a lot of uh, folks miss out, you know, and the parts you can't play. For your students now, um, how, how are you really teaching them? Are you are, are you giving them charts and having them work off that, or are you just giving them CDs and saying, "Here, learn from this"? I mean, how, how, what's your teaching style like? Hmm. Well, there's so much information out there now, a lot more than when I was in school. So uh, we pull up information in class. If I mention a record in class, somebody will pull it up right then. And I might have mentioned a track off that record. We can listen to it in class right then, you know. And uh, if I mention a song, they can find that song right then mm-hmm. in class. So we use we use uh, technology a lot, you know. And it really makes it nice for me because I don't have to go find the record or, you know, or keep them in the office or, you know, oh, I got I left that record at home. I'll bring it next class. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have a much more... Uh, quicker path to finding results and answers. So the things that are still valid and always will be is uh, transcribing and listening and going out and trying and play. And there's two words I tell them. It's how do you learn? By trial and error. And it's like, oh, they get, oh, no. You mean... I'm going to try, and then I'm going to mess up. Yes, <laughs> that's how you learn. Right. <laughs> the Real Lone Ranger is another song of yours. Uh, give people a little bit of the backstory on this one. Well, I grew up watching The Lone Ranger on TV. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, his, his partner. And he rode a white horse, and he had this mask on. And he would, his uh, thing was a silver bullet. You know, that was his trademark. And years, many years later, come to find out that this was based on Bass Reeves, uh, te- uh, Texas Ranger, that uh, down in, in uh, Indian country, as they used to call it, uh, Oklahoma, and down there, before it was part of under government rule. And he um, was a master of disguise. Um, he uh, had a Native American partner that could track, and he could speak uh, all the indigenous languages of the of the region and the territory. 
And when when the uh, 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 folks would escape from custody, the, most of the criminals would go into the territories because most of the, the rangers, they didn't want to go in there, you know. And, uh, and Bass would go in there, and he would bring them to justice. And uh, he rode a he rode a, a light gray horse, and his 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 signature was a silver coin, a, a silver dollar. He would leave. So that they based that whole thing off of his legend, because the whole thing started in Detroit on the radio, and when Bass would catch him. They would send him up to the prison in Detroit. And so they would ask these prisoners, you know, well, how'd you get here? And then Bass Reeves' names kept coming up, and they would tell stories about him. So they built it. They built this image and story. And, uh, you know, it went from radio to Lone Ranger. And, uh, but this was the word they based the, the whole Lone Ranger thing off was uh, Bass Reeves. If you don't know the history of jazz, there's a huge elephant in the room. Jazz is a variation of the blues, and the blues came directly from the African-American experience in the 1800s. Essentially, slaves helped create the music we know today. As jazz became more popular, though, more and more white musicians began playing the form, and I wanted to know if Bobby thought that a piece of black culture was taken away from African-Americans when that started happening. There was always uh, uh, white musicians, you know, playing. Uh, Stan, Stan Getz, uh, Chet Baker, mm-hmm. Bill Evans, uh, a lot of great uh, white musicians contributed. You know, um, um, Mary McPartland. She's from England. She used to have this show, uh, piano jazz, on uh, NPR for many, many years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was always there. You know, there was always this mixture. Uh, but in terms of people who controlled the the images, like Nat King Cole was the first black personality to have a national TV show, the Nat King Cole show. And it only lasted maybe a little over a year, and he had great musicians on there, and entertainers, singers, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Anita Day, all kinds of uh, great musicians, black and white, and female and male, but it sunk because they couldn't get a national sponsor. You know, down south, the, the, the companies were scared to sponsor a national show by a black man because down south, you know, they have they still had this, and you have up north. So that's always been there, you know, in terms of the the, the image that 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 the people who control the images, the corporate people who mm-hmm. run the communications. The images that you see once the TV came out, you know, my mother remembered when there wasn't TV, see? So you got TV, and then now you want what you want people to see on TV. Right. That's very important, see? Because you see how it is now. So this has always been a progression going down. So it's nothing really um, um, that's changed too much, you know, and so, uh, but it's just now more obvious because you get information quicker and there's more places to find information, you know, there's still, there's still, uh, it's still the same, you know, 
what do you what what do you want your what do you want the American public to see? You know, so it's just you know there's still a lot of brothers out there playing this music and uh, still a lot of white folks playing this music, but who who do, who do they want you to see? Like whose face is on the dollar? Right. You know, if this was truly a America, first thing they should do is change the currency to reflect society. Because any country you go to, you look at the money and it tells you what's important in that society. You go to England, you see the queen. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to uh, Canada, you see some wildlife on it. Mm-hmm. You go to you go to Italy, you see some musicians on the mu- on the on the music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You go to Africa, you see black folk on the on the money. You come here, you see dead presidents. Outside of just the money thing, I mean, what 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 else do you think that could be done? Yeah, what can be done to really make it more of a welcoming, accepting, um, understanding America? You mean musically or just I mean, in just general? in general. I mean, if if it's you know, music obviously is a big part of culture, but that's mm-hmm. completely separate, you know, as compared to I mean, yeah. overall, we have to be accepting of all cultures before we can start well, having that really, represented. That's really what it is. The conversations need to be had, you know, uh, 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 you know, it's um, like that crazy rich Af- Asians, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was really cool, you know? And then uh, you have a uh, uh, um, black Panther. Um, you got, you know, you put people out there, you know, so the images, so you grow up, you know, I I had no choice. I grew up with the Lone Ranger. I grew up watching Tarzan. You know, a white guy in the jungle, king of the jungle, Tarzan. That's ridiculous. You know, and <laughs> no, he would he would all the all the all the natives would run. He could control all the animals, and that's what we grew up with. You see what I mean? Right. So shoot, you know, it's pretty simple, man. You know, just change the. What are you gonna sh- let the public see instead of stereotyping people? You know, you know, for you know, good times. You know, you know, you know, temporary layoff. Good times, easy credit rip off. Good times. You know, ain't we lucky we got them? You know, no, I ain't lucky. You know, and it was crazy. That's that's you know, it's some people just won't. It's perception. Yeah. It's perception, you know, and and it's also acceptance, you know, and acceptance of each other, not just whites accepting blacks. It's blacks uh, understanding, and you know, well, they, we we actually had to do all the understanding, you know, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just it's a. It's a process. It's evolution. This is a young country. This is the youngest country on the planet. One of them, you know, in in the League of Nations, we're we're uh, eighteen, you know, just coming out of adolescence, you know, because they got trees and stuff over there that are older than our country, you right? Know? They probably had trees over here that are older than the country, but they cut them down and made <laughs> furniture out of them, you know. <laughs> Oh, look at that old redwood, man. That's like ancient. Man, I can see that on my deck, you know. <laughs> but, you know, other places, they preserve those type of things. Right. You know, they strike a balance. Do you think that it's easier, or how much easier do you think it is now um, for a minority musician to 
make it to a top level than it, than it was when you were when you were working hard to get there. Well, I think it's always been easy if you're good. You know, it's always been easy if you're good. Could water seeks its own level, you know, in this business. You know, if you're good and you're consistent in terms of, you know, you don't, you know, you're not messing up. You know, you show up on time. You know, you're 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 very good. You're nice to people, um, respectful, and and you're putting out a good product, man. You know, uh, the cream always rises to the top. You know, mm-hmm. when I talked to Bobby after our interview. He told me there was another thing he said that might make America a more accepting place. He says he wishes people traveled more, not just to other states or the neighboring countries, but to Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. We can't learn from other cultures if we're always surrounding ourselves with similar sights and sounds. And the Bobby, traveling is an escape from that and can open eyes to the reality of the world. We're all different, and that's okay. This episode of the Crazeology Podcast was produced by myself, Kendall Swank, with editing and production assistance from Mike Simpsons. Make sure to check out all the podcasts from Tribune Audio Network. You can find a list at fox4kc.com or search Tribune Audio Network wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, enjoy the sweet sounds of the goat from Made in America by Bobby Watson.